Route 66. Today we continue our journey through the Bible from the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation. We're cruising through 66 books, one book each Sunday. This morning we're ready to study the 11th book, 1 Kings. And so let's just dive right in, beginning with the structure. How does the book of 1 Kings fit into the Old Testament? Well, as we've learned, the Old Testament consists of three major sections of books, historical, poetical, and prophetical. The historical section consists of the five books of the Law of Moses, called the Pentateuch, or the Torah, and the twelve books of history. 1 Kings, then, is the sixth book of the early history of the Israelites in the Promised Land. So what's the structure of the book of 1 Kings itself? Well, as was noted in the video clip, 1 and 2 Kings were originally one book in the Hebrew Bible entitled Melachim, which means kings. Later, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, artificially divided it into two books, 1 and 2 Kings, probably because the Greek required a greater amount of scroll space than did the Hebrew. The author of the book of Kings is anonymous, although early Jewish tradition says it was written by the prophet Jeremiah. The phrase is still there today and to this day in 1 Kings 8.8 and 12.19 indicates the date of writing was prior to the Babylonian captivity. However, the last two chapters of 2 Kings were written after the captivity, probably by a Jewish captive in Babylon. Jeremiah and whoever else compiled the book of Kings had access to several historical documents including the book of the Annals of Solomon, the book of the Annals of the Kings of Israel, the book of the Annals of the Kings of Judah, and scholars also believe that Isaiah 36 through 39 might have served as a source for some of what's in 2 Kings. 1 and 2 Kings serves as a record of the disobedience idolatry, ungodliness, and immorality of the Jews and explains, really, the reasons why they had the Assyrian captivity of Israel and the Babylonian captivity of Judah. As you can see on this chart, it's in your notes as well, First Kings covers the 120 years from the beginning of Solomon's reign in the United Kingdom through Ahaziah's reign in the northern kingdom of Israel and Jehoshaphat's reign in the southern kingdom of Judah. 120 years of time. Now, with that overall structure in mind then, let's move on to the story. And once again, we are indebted to the Bible Project for their excellent overview of the storyline of 1 Kings and the video clip that we watched to begin today's lesson. We edited that clip, so it ended kind of abruptly with the end of 1 Kings, and we'll pick it up right there when we get together next Sunday. Once again, I've reproduced this chart of the entire Book of Kings, across the inside of your lesson notes for your further review and study. We're concerned mainly with the left-hand side of that chart today, First Kings. So, how can we sum up the story of the book of First Kings? I think two words, un- united and divided. 
Chapters 1 through 11, when the kingdom is united, take place in Jerusalem. Chapters 12 through 22, when the kingdom is divided, move between Samaria in Israel and Jerusalem down in Judah. And since the video did such a good job of telling the overall story, I'm not going to repeat it in chronological order here. But let's just touch on a couple, I think, of important details under each section. The first section being that of the united kingdom. Chapters 1 through 11 give an account of Solomon's attainment of his throne, his unequaled wisdom, his architectural achievements, including the building of the dedication of the temple, his incredible wealth, and unfortunately his tragic downfall. While Solomon was faithful to God, he was blessed. Perhaps God's own words to Solomon in 1 Kings 9 verses 4 and 5 sum it up best. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. And in fact, the early chapters of 1 Kings record Solomon's amazing successes in everything that he did. But when Solomon was unfaithful to God, he was cursed. In God's own words, 1 Kings 9, 6-8, But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and scoff. And in fact, the latter chapters of 1 Kings and all of 2 Kings, for that matter, records the failures of these kings and of the people with just a couple of exceptions. We'll talk about those next week. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 17... When God first gave instructions to the nation of Israel regarding a future king, basically he said, The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make people return to Egypt to get more of them. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Notice three must-nots. Must not acquire great numbers of horses, especially from Egypt. Must not take many wives. And must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So what did Solomon do? First, he acquired a great number of horses. 1 Kings 4 verse 26 tells us that Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. And 1 Kings 10.28 tells us that Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt, the very place God said don't do that. Secondly, he took many wives. In 1 Kings 11, verses 3 and 4, we read he had 700 wives of royal birth. That means 700 treaties with other foreign countries, and he married the daughters of those kings. You understand what that means, right? 
He was trying to ally himself with them. And 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And then third, he accumulated large amounts of silver and gold. In fact, 1 Kings 10 verses 14 and 15 says, The weight of gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. And let me just time out real quick here. I calculated this out this week. That is 25 tons of gold every year. Times 40 years means 2 million pounds of gold. In our value today, a little over $42 billion worth of gold. And that's just part of the gold that he had. Notice this is not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. Verse 21 continues, All King Solomon's goblets were pure gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. (laughs) Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. In fact, verse 27 tells us the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. (laughs) So three must-nots... And Solomon violated all three of them in excess, bringing God's judgment upon himself and upon Israel, just as God had promised. 1 Kings 11, verse 11, So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you. Solomon's downfall before his death at the end of chapter 11. Which brings us to the second half, which is the divided kingdom. Chapters 12 through 22 give an account of the reigns of the four kings in the southern kingdom, Judah, beginning with Rehoboam and Abijah, who were bad, and ending with Asa and Jehoshaphat, who were good, and of the eight kings concurrently in the northern kingdom, Israel, Jeroboam, Nabab, Besha, Elah, Zimri, Omri, Ahab, and Ahaziah, all of whom were bad. (laughs) And as we saw in the chart, God then began to raise up prophets who spoke on his behalf, who were watchdogs of the covenant, who called out idolatry and injustice, who challenged the kings and the people to repent and to follow the Torah, the law of Moses. Among them was Shemaiah in Judah and Abijah, Elijah and Micaiah up in Israel. And of course, the most famous of all those would be Elijah, who was concurrent, by the way, with the most wicked of all of the kings, Ahab, and his notorious wife, Jezebel. You might recall some of the stories about Elijah, the story of Elijah and the great drought. In fact, in 1 Kings 17 and verse 1, Elijah told Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. That's exactly what happened for three years of drought. And then at Elijah's word, 1 Kings 19.45 tells us, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, and a heavy rain started falling. Then there's the story of of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. 
Fascinating story. During the drought, she was willing to make a meal for Elijah out of the very last of her flour and her oil. And her act of faith was rewarded when Elijah told her in 1 Kings 17, 14, For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on Israel, on the land. And then you might remember that the widow's son became ill and died. And Elijah cried out to God, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Then there's the story of Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Earlier I had you turn to uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. So take your Bible right now and follow along. We're going to read a little bit of this story. 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to pick it up with verse 19. Follow along as I read. Elijah says, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, He is God. And all the people said, What you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call in the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he prepared the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, put the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your prophet, your servant, 
and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also looked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. And they seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Some great stories in the book of First Kings. I wish we had time to read more of them. But the book of First Kings ends with the death of Ahab in Israel and the rise of his son Ahaziah to the throne and with the death of Jehoshaphat in Judah and the rise of his son Jehoram to the throne, which then sets us up for the rest of the story in Second Kings, which we will get to next Sunday. United and divided. That's the story. Uh, first Kings, which brings us then to the Savior. Each Sunday as we focus on one of these 66 books of the Bible, one of our priorities is to point out where and how Jesus is to be found in the narrative of that book. Now please remember there's one grand central theme, a single scarlet thread, if you will, that runs throughout all of Scripture, and that is salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. You probably think I'm a broken record because I say this every Sunday, but this is it, folks. Salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Christ. And so here in 1 Kings, we want to stop, look, and listen for the Savior. Where and how does Jesus Christ appear in the narrative of 1 Kings? Well, perhaps it's subtle, but the story of Solomon's interaction with the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10 provides us with an answer. In verses 6 through 9, she says to Solomon, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eye. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and who hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And what's that have to do with the Messiah? (laughs) The Savior? Well, Jesus quoted this story. 1 Kings in Luke chapter 11 and verse 31. Let's read the verse out loud together. On the judgment day, the queen of Sheba will stand up and accuse the people of today... Because she traveled all the way from her country to listen to King Solomon's wise teaching. And there is someone here, I tell you, greater than Solomon. And that someone, of course, is Jesus himself. He's the one who is greater than Solomon. That's why the Apostle Paul could write in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30, You are in Christ Jesus who has become for us, capital W, wisdom, from God. Solomon may have been considered the most wise person to ever live, but Jesus is wisdom personified. Wisdom isn't some kind of nebulous concept or ancient advice for life. Wisdom is draped in Nazarene flesh. Wisdom is the ancient of days himself. And now by the gospel of grace, Jesus is our wisdom. 
That's why even Solomon in the book of Proverbs personified wisdom. In a prophetic way, he said, Wisdom says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me find me. See, there is someone, I tell you, greater than Solomon who is here. And that's the Savior. Which leads us to our final main point, and that's the sense. As we wrap up every lesson, I want to offer the sense of each of these books of the Bible. In other words, what practical take-home lessons can we apply to our daily lives from the book? In today's case, what instructions or applications can we glean from the book of 1 Kings? And at first, I admit, I thought about talking about Solomon's wisdom. But I decided to delay that valuable lesson from Solomon's life until our Route 66 journey brings us actually to the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon because they are his books of wisdom. Therefore, on second thought, I want to talk about two other valuable lessons we can learn from Solomon's example. First of all, I think there's a lesson here about Solomon's humility. Solomon's humility one of the greatest character qualities possessed by one of the greatest kings of Israel, especially in his early years, was humility. One dictionary definition defines humility as a modest or low view of one's importance. But I don't think that that really captures the kind of humility that Solomon demonstrated. True humility may more accurately be defined as having a proper view of one's place in relationship to God and people. And that is to recognize one's submission to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and at the same time recognize one's shared humanity with all of its equalizing imperfections. And therefore, a humble person recognizes the greatness of God and the greatness of his or her need for God. And that's precisely what God saw in Solomon and why God exalted him. In spite of the fact that Solomon was raised by the greatest king of Israel that ever lived, by a godly father that God himself said was a man after his own heart, David, Solomon didn't think more highly of his upbringing or his position or himself than he should. So when God appeared to him during the night in a dream and said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Listen to Solomon's humble reply, 1 Kings 3, verses 7 through 9. Now, my Lord, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? Now, most scholars believe that Solomon lived to be about 80. And since we know that from 1 Kings that he ruled for 40 years, I want you to understand that when he made that request, he wasn't a child. He was a 40-year-old man. And yet, he properly views himself as a child in his inexperience ruling the people. And Scripture records no other king that ever made this same kind of request to God. And God was indeed pleased 
to see the humility in Solomon. And he richly rewarded him for it. Let's see the next few verses here. It says, The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. God was so pleased with Solomon's humility that he also gave him what he didn't ask for. In God's own words, Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. We would do well to learn from Solomon's example of humility and dependence upon the Lord. Unfortunately, Solomon's wealth and honor, the things he didn't ask for, eventually led him to pride. He should have followed his own advice in Proverbs 11.2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. He should have heeded his own warning in Proverbs 16 and verse 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. The Apostle Peter instructs us, 1 Peter 5 verse 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. In fact, let's read this one out loud together. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. So let me just pause and ask you, how are you doing? with this character quality of humility. You have a proper view of your place in relationship to God and to others. Are you valuing others above yourself, putting others' needs and interests before your own? Take a little checkup on that one, would you? So first, the sense of 1 Kings is to learn a lesson from Solomon's Humility. The second lesson that I see here has to do with Solomon's heart. I see a lesson here from Solomon's heart. Solomon is both a positive and a negative example for us. Here we have a man who is financially, politically, socially, relationally, and intellectually blessed to a degree greater than any person before him or after him. I mean, truly he had it all, including godliness. And he wisely and succinctly wrote brilliant advice, such as my life's verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Great words. Solomon understood the importance of wholehearted trust and obedience as well as anyone in the Bible ever did. He had seen God work in his own father David's life and in his own life. He'd even had two one-on-one appearances and conversations with God. And in spite of all of this, Solomon didn't finish well. Why? Because he had a heart problem. 
First Kings 11 verses 9 and 10 explains, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. Don't miss that all-important phrase, his heart had turned away from the Lord. Earlier in 1 Kings 11 verse 4, we read his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. His heart was not fully devoted. He had a heart problem, not not a physical heart problem, you understand. It's a spiritual heart problem. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. And when our hearts are not fully devoted, when we are half-heartedly instead of wholeheartedly following the Lord, we, like Solomon, get ourselves into deep spiritual trouble. Jesus put it this way. Matthew 15, verses 19 and 20. In fact, let's read this one out loud together as well. The heart is the source of evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual sins, thefts, false testimonies, and insults. One more. These contaminate and defile a person in God's sight. Simply put, our sin problem is a heart problem. Our sin problem is a heart problem. All sins have their origin in the heart. Solomon's did and so do ours. That's why Solomon warned us in Proverbs 4 and verse 23, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. As the New Living Translation translates that same verse, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. So let me ask, when was the last time that you did a heart checkup? I'm not talking about an appointment with your human cardiologist. I'm talking about an appointment with your divine cardiologist. Because there's only one who truly sees and knows our hearts. Remember what we learned a couple of lessons ago, 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I mean, even Solomon recognized this truth. He acknowledged to God in 1 Kings 8 verse 39, you alone know every human heart. And later he wrote in Proverbs 24 and verse 12, for God who knows all hearts knows yours. So again, I ask the question, when was the last time that you had a heart checkup? To help us with this, I put together an actual heart checkup exercise for us to complete this week. These are available in the lobby by the Route 66 sign. You can pick one up as you leave today. The goal of this checkup is to identify problem areas, to affirm positive areas, and to help us, I hope, to see see our hearts as God sees them. You're going to have to carve out a little bit of time to take this. It's several pages long, and it's done very prayerfully. It's done just you and God alone with a pencil or a pen and you just take this inventory and it's a heart checkup. Where are you in your relationship with God as far as your heart is concerned? I encourage you to take the time and make the effort to complete this exercise. So pick one of those up as you leave today back there on the lobby. 
So second, the sense of 1 Kings is to learn a lesson from Solomon's heart. Two lessons then from Solomon's example in 1 Kings. A lesson from Solomon's humility and a lesson from Solomon's heart. That's the sense of the book of 1 Kings. Route 66, as we're cruising through the 66 books of the Bible, today we focus on this book of 1 Kings, the structure, the story, the Savior, and the sense. We'll continue our journey next Sunday with the book of 2 Kings. There are 25 chapters in 2 Kings. If you read three to four chapters every day, you'll read through the entire book before we get together next Sunday. Let's pray. God, once again, we uh, so thank You for Your Word how it's coming to life for us as we work our way through these books. Your your Word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And today, Lord, as we've looked at particularly Solomon's life, we've looked at the humility that he had at the beginning of his life and lost at the end of his life. We're looking at the pure heart that he had at the beginning of his reign and how that heart turned away from you and he did not finish well. God, let that be a reminder to us that this journey from beginning to end is one of humility. That this journey from beginning to one end is one of wholeheartedness. That we must not allow our hearts to become divided. That we must not turn our hearts from you. So speak to us about those matters and may this exercise that we take this week, this heart checkup, be a a life-changing experience as we see our hearts as you see us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.